morning, everyone. My name is Tim Harris. I'm pastor here at Woodburn Baptist Church. All of you in Cafe Worship, anybody joining us by video or audio podcast, you, you honor us by participating in this moment of the word with us. So welcome to you. God bless you. Everybody open your Bibles to Psalm 32. Psalm 32. Starting the new message series today entitled Black and White in a Gray World. Black and White in a Gray World. I want us to talk about morality. I want us to talk about sin and that becomes very, very difficult in a day where there seems to be very, very few things that are black and white, very few things that are simply right or, or wrong. One day when I was a kid, I was spending part of an afternoon with my great-grandmother. Her name was Aggie Mays. Her name was actually Olga, but in Simpson County, they just said Aggie. You, you know, y'all been to Franklin? So they called Olga Aggie, so everybody called. And, and yes, that is my dog's name, too. I named my dog after my great-grandmother. I meant to honor her, but you know how, how that is. So uh, anyway, I was spending the afternoon with my great-grandmother, Aggie. Uh, she's about as tall as this table, you need to know. Uh, my my grandma, great-grandmother is about this tall. She went 100 miles an hour at everything. She walked everywhere, rode a bike toward the end of her life. She was a, a, a neat lady. She couldn't hear thunder. She was just deaf as that pew. And so uh, you had to yell at her. And that made it fun to stay with her. And I was with her one afternoon. I was watching TV, just glued to the television. And uh, Grandma Mays came up behind me. And uh, all of a sudden, I heard her say, that old girl needs to put some clothes on. Now, I'm just glued to the television. And, and I'm thinking she must have seen somebody outside. So I said, what old girl, Grandma? Remember, she's deaf. What old girl, Grandma? She said, that girl on TV you're watching, she needs to put some clothes on. I looked back at the TV and I said, Mary Ann? <laughs> I'm watching Gilligan's Island, uh, okay? And it's Mary Ann. Aggie is just blowing a gasket over Mary Ann. Now, now Ginger, you might have to shield your eyes, but, but this is Mary Ann. She's from Kansas. She said, that old girl on that show you're watching, she needs to put some clothes on. I said, Grandma, that's just what she wears, because it was. Mary Ann just wore that. Now, now, what I didn't know at the time was the shorts that Mary Ann wore on Gilligan's Island, children, those shorts were the shortest shorts ever known to man. Uh, they had to pass special indecency standards to let Mary Ann appear on TV in those. I mean, they were short. If you look closely, you can see the bottom of her earlobes, you understand? Those were really cut high. And nobody on TV had ever worn anything that short. I didn't know that. It was just Gilligan's Island, and it was Mary Ann. So I said, that's just what she wears, Grandma. Grandma May said, that little bitty bikini top and, and those hot pants. She called them hot pants. Those little bitty hot pants. I said, Grandma, that's just what she wears. It didn't matter to Grandma May. She maybe changed the channel to the Three Stooges. Turn it to the Three Stooges. Yeah. It is probably good that, uh, that Aggie Mays died before Baywatch. Because it's probably good that she's dead before Miley Cyrus ever twerked, because it would have killed Grandma Mays, honestly. And, and there's something uh, important about the fact that, that, that Aggie Mays and her whole generation is gone because there's just absolutely nobody left anymore who is shocked over anything on television or anything anywhere else these days. Let's just be honest. There's just nobody shocked or, or alarmed over anything 
anymore. The world has really shifted in such a way where almost nobody talks about right and wrong anymore. Or if we do, we would talk about what's right or wrong for me, but, but we no longer assume that what's right and wrong for me is going to be right and wrong for you. We sort of live in a world where everybody's supposed to walk by their own truth, that, that sort of mess, you know? And so we no longer really have a voice or a vocabulary for talking about right and wrong in terms of black and white. It's as if there is nothing black and white anymore, nothing that's clear cut, nothing that's either right or wrong. It's just all gray. And there must be like 50 shades of gray. Do you understand? But as God's people, is that the way we're supposed to live? Is that supposed to be the way we see the world as just an infinite, infinite rainbow of grays and no longer the ability to talk about actual objective right and wrong? Because if there are blacks and whites in a gray world, then we need to be able to talk about sin. So let's talk about sin. Psalm 32. And let's be very, very clear. As we talk about sin today, I want to talk about your sin and my sin. Let's don't worry about the sins of everybody else at this point. Let's just think about the cancer in our own soul. Let's think about the plank in our own eye. All right, will you? Psalm 32. The psalm begins, Oh, what joy for those whose disobedience is forgiven, whose sin is put out of sight. Yes, what joy for those whose record the Lord has cleared of guilt, whose lives are lived in, say the words, complete honesty. Lives are lived in complete honesty. When I refused to confess my sin, when I kept silent, when I refused to confess my sin, my body wasted away and my bones groaned all day long. Day and night, your heavy hand of discipline was, was on me, and my strength evaporated like water in the summer heat. Finally, I confessed all my sins to you and stopped trying to hide my guilt. I said to myself, I, I will confess my rebellion to the Lord, and you forgave me. All my guilt is gone. Therefore, let all the godly pray to you while there is still time, that there may not drown in the flood waters of judgment. For you are my hiding place. You protect me from trouble. You surround me with songs of victory. The Lord says, I will guide you along the best pathway for your life. I, I will advise you and watch over you. Do not be like a senseless horse or mule that needs a bit and bridle to keep it under control. Many sorrows come to the wicked, but unfailing love surrounds those who trust the Lord. So rejoice in the Lord and be glad, all you who obey him. Shout for joy, all you whose hearts are pure. All you whose hearts are pure. I'm not asking anybody to feel sorry for me, but it's not easy to be a preacher these days. Um, it's just not. Um, we do put sermons on the internet now. Most everybody does. It's, it's, it's not a hard thing to do, and it doesn't make us special. But, but understand that it's a big world, and once it's on the internet, it goes everywhere. And so anybody can listen, and, and people do. People listen to sermons from Woodburn Baptist Church from all over the world, and it, it's, it's really amazing. 
and strange. And, and sometimes on Monday, Tuesday morning, it makes it difficult because then people, once they've heard you preach, they feel obligated sometimes to talk back. And, and y'all know me, or I, I, I think you know me. I, I'm not the preacher that, that just blisters people and, and judges people. I, I pray I'm not that man. Um, but sometimes when people address me after hearing my sermons, that they act like I am. I don't know whether it's that they just don't, they don't know me or maybe I don't know myself very well. But it just seems like any time, any sermon, when I come out strongly against something that the Bible would forbid, and the only time I'm ever going to forbid something is if the Bible forbids it. I don't make stuff up. I try not to preach my opinions. The only thing I have to preach ever is God's Word. And if God's word forbids something, then I feel obligated, first off, to forbid that in my own life. And then second of all, to preach what God's word says. But it's interesting how outside of the family of God, or even these days certain segments of the family of God, the word of God is really not an authority. You understand that? The fact that I base my preaching on the Bible doesn't matter to a lot of people because they don't recognize the authority of the Bible, and, and you need to know that they don't. It doesn't really do any good to preach the Bible to people who don't believe the Bible. And so, very, very often, anytime I preach or, or suggest that, that anything is outside of God's will, I, I can literally just almost get hate mail, you understand? It, it's just become so difficult to talk about right and wrong. To talk about sin. To label anything sin is, is these days to be intolerant, to, to be judgmental. But come back to Psalm 32 with me. And, and again, at this point, we're not talking about other people. Let's think about ourselves. Psalm 32. It, it begins really simply and beautifully. If, if you're looking at the old King James, it says blessed. And in the King James, blessed has two syllables, blessed. So it's blessed is the man, blessed is the one. New Living Translation says, oh, what joy there is, oh, what joy. It's a Hebrew word, of course, that begins Psalm 32, and it's very, very difficult to translate. We've almost always heard it translated blessed or, or blessed or happy. And it has all of those, all of those uh, senses of meaning. But like I say, there's really not an English word for this. Uh, you have to find a word that really captures like, celebration and, and exuberance. It's happiness for sure, but it's a word more like congratulations. You understand? Congratulations or even, and I'm not making this up, probably the best translation would be something like whoopee. It's like whoopee. It's that sort of thing. It's that sort of word. So this is a psalm of, of exuberant kind of celebration. And, and the topic here is in an exuberant kind of joyfulness, happiness. And everybody wants to know that kind of happiness. Everybody wants to have something in their life or, or, or a life that's based on th that kind of joyfulness, happiness. You understand? That kind of blessedness. So it's that sense of whoopee, congratulations, way to go, all of those whose disobedience is forgiven, whose sin is put out of sight. In that one verse, you get the theme of this entire chapter, and in many ways, the theme of all of Scripture, and it's simply this, that happiness comes from having your sins forgiven. Happiness comes from the forgiveness and removal of my sin. 
It's a basic fundamental principle of the gospel. But this is the key to happiness. This is the key to life. If you want to know that kind of joy, that kind of overflowing whoopee in your life, it comes from having your sins forgiven. It comes from having all of your guilt removed. What joy for those whose record the Lord has cleared of guilt, whose lives are lived in complete honesty. Whose record the Lord has cleared of guilt, it says in verse 2. Maybe that's, maybe guilt is the thing right now that our culture is so allergic to. Nobody wants to feel guilty. And sometimes as a preacher, I feel like people are telling me that I should not make people feel guilty, and I don't. That's not my job. I don't ever want to try to make you feel guilty. But guilt is a part of our lives because we're sinners. I mean, maybe when I say we, I should just say me. I I am a sinner, but I happen to know that none of you are any different or any better than me. We're all sinners. Sin is the problem, the the universal human problem. It it is the cancer on my soul. It, It is the plank in my eye. Sin is my problem. Now, in my life, that sin is going to manifest its way, it's going to manifest itself in so many different ways. And there are going to be lots and lots of symptoms of this single illness, but make no mistake, the illness is sin. And I'm not, I'm not at this point talking about you. I'm confessing to you that this is my problem, but I just know that you're all going to have to recognize that it's your problem too. We're all the same in this, and we're the same as everybody else in all creation. No matter where they live, no matter what they're guilty of, we all have the very same problem. It is sin. It's sin. Blessed are those whose disobedience is forgiven, whose sin is put out of sight, whose record the Lord has cleared of guilt, whose lives are lived in complete honesty. It's the key to happiness, to have your sin removed, to have your disobedience forgiven. In in, in these few verses, the psalmist David is going to use three different Hebrew words for sin. Maybe it's a hard word to define for us these days. I I don't know. The the word disobedience is pretty good. It's, It's whenever we're disobedient. As children, it's disobedience to parents, but even then, it's simply because God has said, children, obey your parents. Sin is always in relation to God. So when somebody says, who are you to tell me what's sin and what's not? Well, I am nobody to tell you what's sin and what's not. That's not my job. I'm not the one to point out the sin in your life. That's not my place. And when you say, who are you to judge? I'm I'm not the judge. And God help me, if I do begin to judge you, I'm sinning at that moment. And I should be judged. You understand? I'm just being as honest as I can. I'm not setting myself up. And you should not set yourself up as to be the one to tell people what's sin and, and, and what is not sin. God and God alone determines what is sin and what is not sin. Because when any one of us sins, it's always before God. Now, it will have consequences for other people, and sometimes in our sin, we will do horrible things to other people, but make no mistake, our guilt is primarily before God. He is the Holy One. He alone can judge us, and He alone can define what is sin and what is not. 
So at any place in our lives when we are disobedient to God, to what he reveals in his word, to what his Holy Spirit speaks to our heart, that is sin. It's, it's disobedience for one thing. In other places in Scripture, sin is simply talked about in terms of missing the mark or, or falling short. For all have sinned, it says in the book of Romans, and, and fallen short of the glory of God. It's that idea that I'm always going to miss the mark. Now, I, ideally, of course, we're talking about the, the mark that God sets for me. God has a plan. It says in this psalm, God has the perfect plan for my life. He's going to lead me in it. But, but I tend always to fall short of that perfect plan God has for my life. I mean, not even God's plan. I fall short of my own plan for my life. If I say that I'm going to be a better man, if I commit my heart to be a better father or a better husband, I will always fall short of that. It is inevitable. No matter how hard I try, no matter how hard I work, I cannot really change or fix myself, and you can't either. If you could make yourself a better woman, you would have already done that, ma'am. If you could make yourself a better man, sir, if you could possibly deliver yourself from your own addictions, if you could change that filthy mouth of yours, I mean, you would have already done it. We all fall short. We all fall short. Blessed are those whose disobedience is forgiven, whose sin is put out of sight. What, What joy for those whose record the Lord has cleared of guilt. And some of you say, Pastor, this is where you and me are different. I don't have any guilt. You're just guilty. You've grown up in church, preacher, and you got your nose, that giant nose of yours and that giant Bible of yours, and, and, and you're just guilty. you got a guilty conscience. It's probably the way your parents, your parents are probably crazy, and, and so your parents raise you to feel guilty over stuff, and, and you just need to forget all that guilt and just, and just live and let live. I do feel guilty. I've always had a very tender conscience. I'll say that. I feel guilty for things that probably aren't even sin. I, I just do, I do guilt really, really well. I'll be honest about that and pray for me about that because a lot of that's false guilt. I, I agree. But you're telling me you don't ever feel nothing? You never have that sense of falling short, and you never have that sense of, of, of regret. I mean, you don't regret anything you've ever done. You don't regret the way your marriage has turned out. You don't re- regret the way you've talked to your children. You, you don't regret your failures at work. You really can think the filthy thoughts you think and not come away feeling somewhat dirty in your own skin. You're telling me you never feel any of that? Congratulations, whoopee, blessed are those whose sin is put out of sight. According to God's word, if you're ever going to find the happiness, the, the, the joy, the, the, the peace that you crave in life, there's only one way to find it, and that is by having your sin taken care of. You need to be forgiven. You must be forgiven. And of course, before you can be forgiven, you have to sin. And and this is our problem in our day and age. It's as if nobody sins anymore, or we don't call anything sin anymore. And that's what I was saying earlier. In our day, in our culture, if you call something sin, you've automatically, it's hate speech. You know, if I call anything sin, then people are guilty of that sin. I must hate them. 
You understand? It's a bizarre kind of trap to put us in because that means I can't ever call anything sin. I can't even read the Bible out loud because the Bible itself becomes hate speech. You understand? And I just want to suggest to you that the most loving thing that you could ever do for me is point out my sin in love. Because this is what the Bible's doing right here. Blessed, joy, happiness all come from having your sin pointed out so that then you can be forgiven and set free and delivered. You can have your whole record cleared of guilt. Did you understand? If I'm able to offer you that, then I would think to withhold that would be hate. If, if I'm able to tell you the path to forgiveness and happiness and blessing and joy and peace, then I would think not to tell you that would be the true hate. But, but it's just strange. When you remove the vocabulary of sin, you have to come up with a whole new vocabulary to talk about our hurts and our hang-ups and our habits. And, and we've done that. We've done that. So instead of sin now, we'll speak in terms of things like illness. You know, it's, it's really not sin. It's just illness. It's a chemical imbalance in me. And there are real chemical imbalances. There are. And there are real illnesses. And sometimes illnesses weaken me in ways that make it difficult for me to, to live the life I want to live. But make no mistake, if everything is an illness, then the answer for everything would be medication. And so many of us simply try to medicate ourselves thinking that medication will bring the happiness that we crave. Thinking that somehow medication is going to bring the peace that I lack in my soul. And I'm telling you, there is a cancer in your soul. Medication may give you some ability to face it, but it's never going to be the cure. Because your problem, the cancer in your soul is sin. Mine too. Mine too. If it's not illness, then maybe it's addiction. And nearly everything is an addiction. Now, sexual addiction is a thing, of course. In other words, there's a sense if it's an addiction, I can't really help it. I'm powerless. And I would agree with that. I'm powerless to take care of the sin in my own life. I can't rescue myself. But if I'm not allowed to call it sin, if it's addiction, then what I need then would be therapy or recovery. And I agree, you do need a kind of recovery, a kind of therapy, but if you only approach your sin as addiction, if you only think that all of the answers are, are in your group or, or in your counselor, then make, make no mistake, you're never going to find the, the true deliverance that your heart needs. If you just call it addiction, then the answer must be therapy. But, but I'm trying to tell you that, that while you may need therapy, your actual problem it's deeper than that. Your addiction is a symptom of your real disease. You understand? Some of us would say that, that our sin just constitutes an alternative lifestyle. This is just me, and me and Lady Gaga, we was born this way. And since we were born this way, you really can't argue with me because it's just how I am. It's an alternative lifestyle that I'm choosing. And if my sin is an alternative lifestyle, then what I need then is just the acceptance of society. If you would simply accept me, if you would just simply celebrate my lifestyle, my choices, if you would just somehow honor me by, by glorifying my, my choice, then you see, then my alternative lifestyle fits in, and, and what I need then is acceptance. You see how that works? 
We can name it in a thousand ways, but every time we rename sin, all we're actually doing is removing ourselves from the place of responsibility. We're saying it's not my fault, or we're saying I should be excused, or I am somehow the exception to the rule. But, but understand this, if you misdiagnose the problem, if you misdiagnose the problem, you'll never offer the proper cure. If you misdiagnose the problem, you'll never offer the proper cure. And if we all have the same problem, then there is one cure for the entire human race. And this, my friends, is the message of the gospel. And it's simply this, sin has one cure. It has absolutely one cure. And the only cure for sin is forgiveness. The, the only cure for sin is forgiveness. You may need medication. You may need extra help. I'm not saying that you don't, but I'm telling you that all of the problems you face are not your problem. The fact that every relationship you've ever been in just seems to blow up. I want you to understand, these are symptoms of your problem. And you have to get to the root of the problem. And we all have the very same problem. It is sin. And sin only has one cure, and that is forgiveness. It's always, always forgiveness. When I refuse to confess my sin, verse 3. My body wasted away. My bones ached. Day and night your hand of discipline was heavy on me. My strength evaporated like water in the summer heat. Finally, I confessed. Let me talk to the church for a minute. Um, I think one of the reasons that we've lost that ability to talk about sin, that we've lost that ability to use that vocabulary, is that we have misused it. As, as church people, as, as Christian people in the community, in the world, we've often misused it. And, and we need to acknowledge that. Through the years, we have called sin, we have called things sin that truly weren't sin. We did that. And people can see through that. We've called things sin just because we didn't like them or, or they didn't suit us or didn't suit our preferences or our opinions. We've called things sin. We've forbidden things that God never forbids. And so now when we try to come back and speak of objective truth or the things that God actually does forbid, people don't listen to us. We've preached too much of our own opinions. We've preached about things that were not sin and we've called people sinners who were not necessarily guilty of things that God would forbid. Do you understand what I'm saying? I mean, we've wasted a whole lot of time preaching against junk like dancing. And you don't know what dance. <laughs> who, who, who gets to just begin preaching things like that that the Bible never condemns? I mean, we preached, I mean, I grew up hearing sermons against the length of men's hair. I mean, like in my church growing up, the worst sin for a teenage boy was to have hair over your ears. That's not even a joke, y'all. We got extra points if we got a man's haircut. I mean, so no longer, no longer was the focus on our hearts. It was on our heads, the, the length of your hair. 
I've heard preaching against, against you know, the length of women's skirts and, and, and whether or not women could wear makeup. And, and you understand that these aren't biblical issues, that these are just preacher issues. You know, church people and, and, and preachers have just preached against the things that they didn't like and they called it sin and tried to shame and condemn people for doing things that God doesn't forbid. It's as if sometimes we, we lose the ability to know the difference between the things we don't like and the things God doesn't like. We don't get to do that. We don't call things sin that, that the Bible never calls sin. How many sermons have been preached against interracial dating and interracial marriage? You understand, people, that's not sin. It never was sin. The Bible never condemns that. That's just your grandfather or that's just whatever southern state you, you came from. It's not God's word. And you don't get to elevate the things you don't like to the place of, of sin. You just can't do that. But we've done that so long that we've really sort of squandered our ability to talk about right and wrong, to talk about black and white in the gray world. We've injected our opinions for so long that now people just assume that everything we say is opinion. We've done that, we've blown that because we've misused the language of sin, just calling everything sin just because we didn't like it. Now what goes beyond that is we tend only to care a whole lot about the sins that we're not guilty of. That's why in this sermon series, I'm going to preach about abortion. I'm going to preach about homosexuality. And some of you are just absolutely going to eat that up. Preach it. Preach it. You're going to say, preach it. Because you've never had an abortion. You're not gay. And so therefore, it's just delicious to hear the preacher rip up somebody else's sin. That makes you feel so righteous. Come back tonight. I'm going to talk about the way you treat the poor. Because honestly, the Bible says a whole lot more about the way we treat the poor than any of the topics I just said. The Bible doesn't mention abortion one single time. But it says an awful lot about the way you treat your neighbors. But honestly, in church, just can't hardly get an amen if you talk about the sins we actually commit. And I preach on how we treat the poor. Nobody's going to say, preach it, preach it, because you know that's going to cost you money. Man, how many deacon interrogations have I set in when we say, have you been divorced? How many times have you been divorced? Talk about those divorces. Because the Bible does say that, that a deacon should be the husband of one wife. But you know, there are a whole lot of qualifications in there. And right above husband of one wife is a deacon can't be a lover of money. I've never been in a deacon interrogation where somebody said, do you love money? Because honestly, in our church, and most every church, if you started booting out the men who loved money, wouldn't have any men. We're greedy. I mean, I mean that's our sin. But honestly, we don't, we don't point out the sins that we're guilty of. Let's preach on gossip. I mean, let's just do gossip. Let's do all the G sins, gluttony, greed, and gossip. I didn't think I'd get any amens. And gluttony made about half of you really mad at me. <laughs> You're mad at me now. The world knows us. Your neighbors know you. The people that you work with, they know you. 
you're going to get up and start pointing out their sins? And, and that's been our, our habit. We've taken so much joy and energy in pointing out the sins of the world, and we never want to point out the sins of the church. And we've lost our authority. We've lost our credibility in talking about sin because we only want to talk about other people's sins. That's why I love Psalm 32. The psalmist, it's David. He says, when I refuse to confess my sin, it's personal. You understand? He didn't say, when Barack Obama refused to confess the sin, when Barack Obama didn't go to church, or when, when my, my mama, my daddy, when my neighbors, when he, it, no, it's, it's when I refuse to confess my sin. The biggest problem you face is not culture, it's not your family, it's not the president. The biggest problem you face is that you refuse to confess your sin. That is the root of all of your problems. When I refuse to confess my sin, my body wastes away, my bones ached. He says, I could just feel it in my whole body. This, this unwillingness, this inability to, to say my sin out loud, it, it made me sick. Honestly, I, I believe that. I really do believe that, that secret sin makes you sick. I believe that secrets make you sick overall. And, and notice the silence. He lives his life in silence. When I kept quiet, when I refused to confess my sin, my body wasted away. I groaned all day long. Day and night, your hand of discipline was heavy on me. God, is, is he like that? Is it a heavy hand of discipline? Well, yeah, he, he's a loving, he's a good father. Now, what does God say about your sin? What does he want to do for you? Make no mistake, he wants to forgive you. God wants you to come home to him. God wants you to confess so that you can be forgiven. He's not waiting with a giant ball bat to whack you upside the head like he's been wanting to do since prom night 1979. You understand? That's not God. That may have been your daddy or, or some preacher you've known, but that's not the Lord. He wants to forgive you. He longs for you to come home, to come back to him, because he wants to clear, erase your heart of all of this guilt, all this regret you live with. He wants to wash you clean. He wants you to know happiness and joy and the life he has for you. Not understand that? Day and night, your hand of discipline was heavy on me. As a believer, I firmly believe that all of my sins were forgiven at the cross. Jesus paid it all, and all to him I owe. Sin had left a crimson stain. He washed it white as snow. But, but when I keep my sin, when I begin to harbor sin in my heart, man, there is, a, there is a brokenness in my relationship with God. I'm not saying he throws me away, he doesn't. I think it's got more to do with me. I had a neighbor once who stole a check from me and then forged it and cast it at Crossroads Market. Like Crossroads Market is like there beside the church. And everybody there knows me and everybody there knows him. And why in the world they would cash my check that he was standing there handing them. After they did it, they called me and said, we just cast a check for this guy. Was your name on it? Did you mean to do that? No. You know, no. Man, he literally forged a check, cast it in Woodburn, stole money from me. Over $300. The Crossroads Market.
I forgave him. I would have given it to him. That's the dumb thing. I would have given it to him in a heartbeat. And honestly, I did just give it to him. Just gave it to him. I, I don't care. I forgave him, dummy. Just forgave him. But till the day he died, he wouldn't look me in the face. He wouldn't look me in the face. I didn't care. I wasn't still thinking about that. That's dumb. But he's more important to me than $300. I don't care. It's a lot of money. He was worth more. I just forgave him. Dummy wouldn't look me in the face till the day he died. I preached his funeral. I'm just not going to let that be between us. And when we sin before the Lord, that's how we do. It's not that God writes us off. It's not that God keeps bringing it up. It's just that, man, you sin and that relationship's broken and you just won't come back to God. You won't look him in the face. You just won't confess your sin. I refused to confess my sin. My body wasted away and I groaned all day long. Day and night, your hand of discipline was heavy on me, and my strength evaporated like water in the summer heat. Finally, I confessed all my sins to you. It's, it's that word, finally. Verse 5, finally, finally. What takes us so long? Finally, I confessed all my sins to you, and I stopped trying to hide my guilt. Underline that word, hide. I stopped trying to hide my guilt. I said to myself, I'll confess my rebellion to the Lord, and you forgave me. All my guilt is gone. You forgave me. All my guilt is gone. God forgives. He never brings it up again. Now, the devil will. The devil will never forget. But stop listening to the devil. This is your problem. You understand? God never brings your sin back up. He, he casts it as far as east is from the west. You're not guilty anymore. The only one in the place to judge you says that you're not guilty. You're not guilty anymore. So you don't have to live feeling sorry. You don't have to live feeling guilty and ashamed. You don't have to hide your face from God or anybody else. When I confessed my sins, he forgave me. All my guilt is gone. Therefore, let all the godly pray to you while there's still time that they may not drown in the floodwaters of judgment. Verse 7. For you are my, say the word, hiding place. I stopped trying to hide my guilt, and you became my hiding place. The God that you're running from right now, if you would only turn around, you could run to him. You understand? And find everything you're looking for. You're, you're trying to hide your sin when God himself would be your hiding place. So let's, let's just break it down real simply. I want to call us to a time right now of prayer and confession. How does it work? Step one, verse two. What joy for those whose record the Lord has cleared of guilt, whose lives are lived in, say the words, complete honesty. Step one, just simply be honest. Be honest. Stop making excuses. Stop trying to call it something else. It's, it's just sin, brother. It's just sin, sister. And, and I sin. I probably don't have the same sins you do. We probably have a lot of sins in common. It's probably why we shouldn't hang out very much. But our sins aren't the same, but, but we all sin. And the first step is just to be honest about that, to be completely honest. 
You're not hiding anything from the Lord. You're not fooling him. And you're not helping yourself by running. You try to make yourself feel better and look better. Maybe that's why we're so attached to material things so we don't have to face the spiritual truth about ourselves. Maybe we feel like if we look good on the outside that we'll somehow take care of the cancer on the inside, but, but it just comes down to step one, honest. Stop making excuses. Stop blaming somebody else. Stop calling it another name. Just be honest. Just agree with God. Just agree with him. It's the next step. I put it this way. Throw it down before the Lord. Because it comes back to verse 5. The word that David uses here, finally, I confessed all my sins to you. It's a Hebrew word that means I threw it down. You just got to throw it down before the Lord. It's a beautiful picture of being done with it. You just got to be done with your sin. And that's the hard part for so many of us. We're not finished sinning. And some of you, if you were being completely honest today, that's what you would say. Brother Tim, I could confess it, and I could say I'm sorry, but, but I'm not sorry. And the sin that I know is in my life, I'm going to walk right out that door, and I'm going right back to it. But that sin that you love, that darling sin that you continue to nurture in your life, it is a cancer in your soul, and it's going to destroy you. That's why the psalmist says you've got to pray to God, you've got to throw it down before it's too late. This is not a sin that you can keep as a pet. It's going to devour you. Before it's too late, agree with God. Throw it down before the Lord. Just be done with it. Walk away from it. Well, Brother Tim, I don't even feel that guilty about it. Maybe this is, maybe this is actually God's will for me. You don't understand. God's not going to make an exception for you. He's not going to rewrite the book for you. If he forbids it in his word, if the Holy Spirit convicts you in your heart, then that is sin for you. You've got to throw it down. Whether you feel guilty or not, whether you feel like it's wrong or not, if God says it's wrong, you throw it down. And then step three, verses eight and nine. You've got to listen to what God says and obey. I mean, if sin is basically disobedience, then once you're forgiven, once you've thrown your sin down before the Lord, you're going to listen and obey. Verse 8, look at what he says. The Lord says, I will guide you along the best pathway for your life. What kind of pathway? The best. What pathway for your life? God's going to lead you on what pathway? The best pathway. What if all of your friends have a different idea? Would you listen to your friends or listen to the Lord who says, I'm going to lead you on the best pathway of, of your life? Understand? And you're listening to your friends. Have you looked at your friends? Why don't you just go back and look at the last two weeks of your friend's Twitter page? Do they seem like smart people? Do your friends even look like smart people? Understand? Who are you listening to? God says, I will guide you along the best pathway for your life. I will advise you. I will watch over you. Don't be like a senseless, stubborn horse or mule that needs a bit and bridle to keep it under control. Don't be stubborn. God has the best pathway for your life. You throw down your sin before him and listen to what he says. Obey him. It's the best pathway for our lives. Last line, verse 11. Shout for joy. Shout for joy. All you whose hearts are pure. 
Well, shoot. Who are we talking about there? Hearts are pure. Man, my, my heart's not pure. Uh, Y'all see the outside of me? Y'all see what happens in in, in front of the curtain? You have no idea what's backstage with me. What's backstage is what's in my heart, in my head. It's not good. It's not pure. I'm I'm a sinner. So what's it mean? Shout for joy, all you whose hearts are, are pure. I mean, after this psalm, is there anybody whose heart is pure? Maybe the beautiful truth is purity of heart is not about being perfect. Maybe purity of heart is about being forgiven. And before you can be forgiven, you got to know that you sin. I'm asking you to be completely honest before God. Throw down your sin before him. Listen and obey him. That is the best pathway for your life. It is the life of joy. Pray with me. Well, Jesus, we know that you came into the world to save sinners. Speaking of sinners... I am the worst of all. Help me. Lord, will you give me grace to be completely honest with you, with myself, with the world, Lord? May I keep no more secrets. May I no longer put a false face up in front of the world, Lord, before you. Or would you just give me the courage and the grace to agree with you about my sin, to acknowledge it, Lord, to simply say that you're right and I'm wrong. Lord Jesus, I pray that all across this house today in the sound of my voice that people will be bold and willing finally to throw their sin down before you, to begin once more to listen and obey, to follow you as children as opposed to running from you like stubborn mules. God, there are many of us in this house who do not have peace. We do not have joy, Lord. We do have a lot of guilt and shame. We do have a strong tendency to judge others very, very harshly and judge ourselves very, very slightly. God, help us. Will you, in what remains of this worship service, dear Lord, show us our sin, make us willing to confess our sin, that we might find salvation, that we might find happy. We pray these things in the name of the only one who can clear us of our guilt.